Welcome to episode 51, Narcissism and the Skilled Abuser, Relational Impact, by Dr. Katherine Barrett from Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hi, my name is Dr. Katherine Barrett, and I am a clinical forensic psychologist practicing in Woodland Hills, California. I'd like to welcome you to our discussion today about narcissistic personality disorder. Um, first, I'll tell you a little bit about myself and my training and how this uh, came to be an important topic for myself, my research, and now my practice. Um, I studied and trained in working with sex offenders, sexually violent predators, people found not guilty by reason of insanity, and mentally disordered offenders. And at this time, I was first exposed to working with pathological forms of personality disorders, more specifically narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. I did my training at the San Francisco Forensic Institute in San Francisco, California. I also worked for various conditional release programs for mentally disordered offenders. Um, and at this time, I also did a lot of treatment and training and uh, evaluating um, individuals with pathological forms of personality disorders. I currently have a clinical practice in Woodland Hills where I now treat a lot of survivors who have been exposed to forms of narcissistic and sociopathological forms of abuse. Um, I work with families, teens, and kids. I am also an adjunct professor at the University of Southern California, teaching at the USC Rossier School of Education in the Marriage and Family Therapy graduate program. So um, this topic has really become more, um, I don't know how to really say it. I think people have started to pay a lot more attention to just narcissism, which is not necessarily narcissistic personality disorder, and we will get into that. And I started doing presentations on this topic a little over a year ago and um, really started to realize how many people had been interested in this topic and really hadn't learned about personality disorders, specifically NPD or antisocial, um, in their graduate programs outside of sort of a textbook or, or superficial level. Um, so I realized that this needed to be talked about more. And the more people who were coming into my practice and I was recognizing this cycle of abuse and people sort of expressing the same type of relationship over and over, and um, as well as for myself coming out of a narcissistically abusive relationship, this became personal for a variety of reasons, and I just started researching the heck out of it and started to figure out that more people had been affected by uh, this form of abuse than we've really recognized, at least openly, in our field. So today, we're going to be discussing um, what narcissistic personality disorder is, how it's related to antisocial personality disorder, but not necessarily the same thing, the difference between narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder, um, we're going to be looking at the cycle, you know, how it manifests in intimate partner relationships, the cycle of emotional abuse, and then how as clinician, clinicians do we work with and help survivors identify this abuse and, and traumatic bonding that happens, and I'll, I'll go into what that is, and, and then also how this can form unhealthy levels of empathy that can at times turn into codependency and really disallowing that person from, from either leaving or developing healthy expectations or managing expectations or boundaries if they uh, don't have the opportunity to go, no contact. So let's go ahead and get started and first talk about what abuse is. So abuse is really knowingly, recklessly, and intentionally causing harm to some someone. Now there's a lot of, um, you know, this topic, there's, there's so many different theories about 
you know, the person's level of awareness. Uh, and I think a lot of that's going to come down to where you sit theoretically. Um, so I believe that there is a level of awareness, um, not so conscious that they know everything that they're doing, but they are aware that they're different. And when I say they, I'm talking um, right now about people who are pathologically narcissistic. Um, however, I will say that a lot of what happens um, with someone with NPD is you will see that it's a series of defense mechanisms. So oftentimes the person isn't acting, they're actually reacting to their environment, which is why it's very hard for them to form healthy attachments and um, be accountable. And we'll get into the, the diagnostic criteria in a moment. But it makes it very different for, excuse me, very difficult for them to have meaningful relationships. So what we think is narcissism is likely not, okay? And what I mean by that is there's a lot of popular psychology out there about someone who, you know, takes a selfie and they're the center of attention and they put themselves on uh, Instagram every day. You know, there, there's a lot of egocentricity out there for sure, and I think a lot of that is our social climate. Um, but I think that we really need to dig deeper than that and realize that there is, uh, this is a very, very, very dangerous and pathological um, disorder that goes beyond someone just being egocentric or even manipulative. So we need to get outside of the DSM. We need to get bigger than that. Okay, because many therapists have learned about narcissistic personality disorder in a dry academic and theoretical manner. You take a psychopathology class in school, they kind of skim over the different clusters and the access to stuff, but they don't really dig into what this looks like. What does this actually look like experientially? So many graduate programs kind of gloss over that. Unless you are more psychodynamic or psychoanalytically oriented, a lot of schools sort of gloss over the depths of this. So what happens is the therapist doesn't learn about the real life experiential and abusive tactics used to manipulate and control their victims. So many victims know more about the cycle of narcissistic personality disorder abuse than the therapist. And this is a problem because we should only be working in our area of competency. And if we are incompetent and unaware uh, or unable to recognize when this cycle is happening, we may be forcing someone to work on a relationship that's actually causing more harm. So to revisit, um, what NPD is. Steven Johnson, who is a PhD, uh, quoted in Psychology Today, the narcissist is someone who has buried his true self-expression in response to early injuries and replaced it with a highly developed compensatory false self. So what Steven Johnson, what Dr. Johnson's saying here is he's saying that this person, due to early injuries, has split off the true self, shoved it down compartmentalized it maybe in a coma somewhere in their body and developed this very grandiose compensatory sense of self that allows this person to get through the world without having to open up the shame and the guilt and the early injuries. So a lot of overcompensation. When we look at NPD, we have to recognize and remember to diagnose it, it must be pervasive in all areas of life. My one disclaimer to that is um, oftentimes you will see someone who is NPD or diagnosed with NPD, which people are, for the record, people are very rarely diagnosed with NPD. It's actually very difficult to diagnose someone because they have to come to treatment for that, and many of um, these individuals do not go to therapy. But what you will often see is that they may be higher functioning at home, and then their NPD is much more severe at work or vice versa. Okay, But overall, you're going to see it um, in all areas of his or her life. And uh, what you see is grandiosity sense of self-importance, and this goes beyond a neurotypical or even an egocentric person, like I was saying earlier. Oftentimes these thoughts are, are not even reality-based. Um, there is a, an extreme sense of entitlement. So rules don't apply to these people, okay? This can even move towards breaking laws. 
um, going to prison. And this is where we moved more towards into the antisocial disorders. And, and we'll talk about that in a bit. There is an absence of genuine remorse or guilt. So this individual may apologize, but they're apologizing because they are gaining something from the apology. If there's any risk in them losing something, if they apologize, uh, they will likely find a reason to not apologize. They exploit people um, for personal gain. It could be for sex, it could be for money, it could be for power. Um, and then we have to remember what the narcissistic extension is. So the inability to separate themselves from another. So they lack accountability or responsibility for failure and mistakes. Highly unaccountable. They will, um, and they are thoroughly convinced that they're the victim um, in most situations where they're blamed for something. And if they, you know, do, again, uh, admit to any uh, responsibility or they are accountable, it's going to be from for some gain. So the narcissistic spectrum, right? We're in the, we're in the DSM-5 now, so we're, learn, we're looking at diagnoses on a continuum, which is really helpful, especially for personality disorders, because if you think about it, we all have a level of narcissism we need it in order to survive. So the, the spectrum ranges from healthy narcissism to what would also be uh, called malignant narcissism. Um, so what that means is people who are more pathologically oriented to the point where they actually meet all criteria, they may be diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Okay, so they're not only narcissistic, but they also have a lot of the criminogenic uh, components of the disorder as well. And this is what we may call psychopathy or sociopathy outside of um, the clinical domains, more layman's terms, we might call this person a psychopath or a sociopath. Then we have what are called self-aware narcissists or flexible narcissists. And these are people who are not um, necessarily meeting the full criteria and they probably have a better chance at making sustainable change because they are able to, at least to some degree, recognize that their life has become unmanageable and, and are accountable for the, damages in their rela the damage in their relationship. So healthy narcissism versus malignant narcissism. So from a psychoanalytic theory, the healthy narcissist has been characterized as possessing realistic self-esteem without being cut off from a shared emotional life as the unhealthy narcissist tends to be. So a healthy narcissist is someone who recognizes their importance, has self-esteem, is motivated, but has healthy forms of empathy. They are not empathy deficient. Malignant narcissism, who, which was uh, coined by Otto Kernberg, described, uh, it's described as a syndrome characterized by a narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial features, paranoid traits, and egocentonic aggression. Egocentonic meaning that it's never their fault. It's never their fault. Um, other symptoms may include an absence of conscience, a psychological need for power and grandiosity. And this all comes from um, Kernberg's research in 2004. So what is the difference between you know, NPD and, and antisocial personality disorder, APD? So what I was saying earlier about narcissism is it's really a, it's really a big defense mechanism. It's someone who never developed uh, a personality due to early injuries. So they really feed off of um, other people for their uh, supply. And in other words, they're gonna disappear without attention. They really need other people, think like an emotional vampire. They need people to boast them. They need people to fill them. Uh, they are constantly externally validated, although they never admit that. Psychopaths or people who are more antisocial can coexist long periods of time without supply 
which means that they can really live without that constant attention. But they will stalk or groom or prepare a victim if, if they can get some sort of functional gain from that individual. So narcissists display a range of negative and extreme emotions, almost like um, that borderline pendulum. So we'll see from depression to mania, okay? But psychopaths, their brains are wired in a way that makes the experience and expression of emotion completely void. So it's a lack of conscience versus a defense mechanism. Um, not that there aren't defenses at play with antisocial, but with narcissists, it's much more of, uh, you know, it's more out of their awareness or their conscious awareness. It's more subconscious or unconscious. And with someone who's APD, uh, oftentimes they're extremely aware of what, what they're doing. So narcissists likely take revenge or feel wounded when they experience criticism or attack. Psychopaths are often really unmoved by this. Um, you know, unless they don't get what they want or there's some error in, in their, uh, their plan, the majority of time they just move on. So antisocials have unhealthy levels of narcissism, but not all individuals with NPD are antisocial. So another, you know, NPD and APT traits can coexist but it's really unlikely a dual diagnosis. So for example, we might see drug-seeking behaviors um, in both narcissistic and antisocial traits. This comes from Swart 2016, his research. Um, there's a lot of attention-seeking and risk-taking. Uh, antisocial personality disorder elicits more criminogenic thinking and impulsivity, like I was saying earlier. So they might move more into breaking laws. NPD elicits more attention-seeking, sensitivity to criticism, and self-medicating. And this is where a lot of times we'll see narcissistic and borderline traits overlap. If you look at a brain scan of a psychopath, there's an underdevelopment of the inhibitory structure and an overdevelopment of the reptilian structure. So according to Goldner, Vukov, and Moore, 2010, um, what their research found is that there's an under-stimulated autonomic nervous system. So these people basically have, uh, a, there's a void in the frontal cortex, which you know is, is uh, responsible for impulse control, uh, you know, risk-taking, inhibition, things like that. So they, they lack that. There's no brakes in their car. So they will stop at nothing. Um, and there are plenty of brain scan images out there now that indicate. Robert Hare has done, also done a lot of great, great research on psychopathy, developed the psychopathy checklist. And another um, individual you should look at is Dr. James Fallon, F-A-L-L-O-N, who does a lot of neurological studies as well and has discovered that sociopathy actually runs in his family. So really interesting stuff if you want to take a look at that. So yeah, the question always comes up, which is can narcissistic personality disorder be cured? The short answer, no. Not likely. There's pretty much a 0% prognosis. Um, this disorder does not function like other personality disorders. Gary Klein, uh, who is a licensed clinical social worker, does a lot of research on, on this topic. And he states that, you know, he believes that NPD does not function like other personality disorders. It is actually a series of defense mechanisms replacing the character so in other words, there's no personality left. There are only defense mechanisms. So we all <laughs> believe we're great clinicians. I, I at least hope we do. We do good work. But we're not that good. We cannot go back and restructure a personality, especially one that's been fragmented or never formed. So we have to recognize our limitations. Why is NPD so dangerous? Well, there's different forms. You know, we have the covert narcissist and the overt narcissist. And oftentimes, um, pathological narcissists will demonstrate both. Covert just meaning that they might present um, more as a victim. They might be quieter, more reserved. 
um, versus the overt type that sort of sucks the life out of the room when they come in and you're just easily bothered by them or, or charmed, easily charmed by them. Here's the other thing. Narcissism is actually very adaptive. If you ask a self-aware narcissist or a flexible narcissist whether or not they see change as desirable, oftentimes they're going to state that there's no incentive to change because their personality deficiency actually works in their favor. So it serves as an illusion of control so much that even their victims fall for their con con artist scheme. And this develops the early stage of trauma bonding, which we will talk about what trauma bonding is. People who have pathological forms of this disorder typically get worse with age. So these are people that can get through the world really toppling over whomever they want to get their needs met with very little emotion unless someone taps into those early injuries and exposes that vulnerability then you're going to see some serious rage but they're able to succeed in as ceos cfos heads of companies corporations it takes a certain type of personality to really get to the top without caring who you drag down with you So many of them are very successful financially, but relationally, they've destroyed everyone in their path. So again, one of the bigger differences between NPD and APD is the Achilles heel of someone who's pathologically narcissistic is their addiction to to people. So essentially, a narcissist fears that they would disappear without the admiration and attention of others. So they lack a sense of self. This addiction to power, people, sex, or whatever else they seek to fill the void really disallows them from forming healthy and emotionally mature bonds. Their abuse is often rooted in their resentment around needing people to feel alive. So if, you, if, if any of you have worked with someone who's pathologically narcissistic, uh, they will love you till they hate you. Once they realize they formed an attachment with you, you may start to see them push away or try to up the ante in the room and take the power. Um, you may see them drop out of therapy, but they have a very difficult time forming healthy and emotionally mature bonds. They are, they form relationships for a variety of reasons, but to form emotionally mature bonds and healthy bonds is definitely not one of them. So their abuse is often rooted in their resentment and exposing those underlying defense uh, mechanisms is really their worst nightmare, exposing their truth, exposing that true self is really their worst nightmare. Uh, when someone, some, so to speak, will pull the mask off of them, uh, that is when they will likely shut that person out and never speak to them again if they've been exposed. So this is what makes therapy very difficult for these individuals because to be superficially vulnerable might be easy, but to do any real depth work and accountability work, um, even trauma work, with individuals because there is a, there's a, a decent amount of trauma and intergenerational trauma with narcissistic personality disorder. It's very, very difficult to do really meaningful work. So getting to one of the major reasons why this topic is so important to, um, and relevant today is the danger, um, the implications of having someone who's pathologically narcissistic in your life. Sam Vaknin, who um, did the documentary I Psychopath, um, and he's also written books, and he identifies as narcissistic personality disordered, and in some documentaries or in some literature, he will identify as a sociopath. He says this, quote, the, the vast majority of psychopaths, they are not dramatic. They are pernicious. Most psychopaths are subtle, They are more like poison than a knife, and they are more like slow-working poison than cyanide. This slow-working poison is what contributes to the trauma bonding or Stockholm syndrome that happens when they find a victim 
and this person now is pulled into this cycle and cannot leave. What does this mean? What does this all mean for, for marriage and family therapists or clinical psychologists who don't work in forensic settings or institutionalized settings? Well, you're more likely to work with the survivors, for one, um, who are often in the dark about the cause of their complex post-traumatic stress, uh, post-traumatic ruminations. Um, so they're, they're, they're a lot of times in the dark about this. So there's a lot of betrayal they feel after falling victim to the abuse once they figure out what's happened to them. Um, and you know, we have to be careful because sometimes the person who's the personality distorted individual may present as your victim. And there are ways to kind of weed that out, which we'll talk about in a, in another podcast. But during couples counseling, the inability to identify these traits can create increased distress in the victim and re-traumatize them. So we have to be aware we have to be able to recognize this dynamic if we see it because couples counseling may end up being more harm, causing more harm. So let's talk now about the cycle of narcissistic abuse and what happens and why it's so hard for these individuals to leave. The narcissistic cycle of abuse starts with what's called the idealization or love bombing stage. In this stage, the narcissistic individual has moved on to a new victim in hope that this person will be the one person who finally takes them out of their pain and their trauma and can distract them from all the internal torment uh, that they experience on a daily basis. They have to constantly be distracted. They are addicted to newness. Their relationships do not last. I've had people ask me, well, you know, I've known people who are narcissists who have been relationships for or marriages for 30 plus years. Dig deep, there's probably been multiple affairs of some sort. So they might be with that person, but not with that person. So the love bombing stage is very, it's a very intentional stage. It's actually the most um, vi uh, abusive stage for the reason that it, it actually starts the unhealthy bonding, the trauma bonding. This is where the individual is on their best behavior. They're developing and forcing a dependency with this new partner. This stage is often filled with future faking, so false promises about wanting to create a life with this person idealizing the victim, making the victim feel as though they have found their soulmate. So they mirror you. Remember, they don't have their own personality. It's fragmented, broken, underdeveloped, undeveloped. So they see you, they ask a lot of questions. They are super interested in their victim. They ask a lot of questions. So it makes that person feel very, very important, like they're the only person in the room. And what the narcissist is doing is they're gathering information. He or she is gathering information to start mirroring back this ideal person to the victim. A lot of people may disagree with what I'm about to say, which is okay. I'm okay disagreeing with you if you're okay disagreeing with me. This is a topic that needs a lot more research. But I will say this, narcissists are never loyal. They're never loyal because they do not bond beyond a superficial bond. Their bonds are only to get their needs met. So every victim has a shelf life. Every victim has a shelf life. After the love bombing stage occurs and the, the, the individual with NPD realizes they now have this person under their control, the second part of the abuse starts, which is called devaluation. Devaluation is now in place because the trauma bond is formed and the dependency has been formed. So now what you'll see is the narcissist begins to pull back and offer intermittent reinforcement to cause panic and instability in the victim. So think about inter intermittent, intermittent reinforcement. You go to a casino in Vegas. The reason why slot machines are so addicting is because if you hit a jackpot, 
Even if you have to sit there for 48 more hours until you hit another one, you know there's a chance you'll hit that jackpot again. The intermittent reinforcement of that honeymoon stage to devaluation becomes so addicting that the victim's brain is actually re-hardwired to wait for that perpetrator to bring that honeymoon stage back around. Very similar to what we would see in the, the cycle of domestic violence. So they pull back, they offer this intermittent reinforcement. The victim starts to panic, starts to feel like, oh, I'm not doing enough. This person used to love me more. I need to be better. And this is where we now start to see gaslighting, which is crazy making. The cheating starts, okay? They're often going to triangulate their victim with another individual. That individual could be the person that they're actually cheating on their victim with. It could be a coworker or a friend, someone who makes the victim feel less than adequate and starts to fuel the jealousy. And the person, the, the NPD individual will also start to withhold intimacy at this time. So they're likely looking for a new source or they've started to um, cheat on them with a new source. Quinn Holiday, who is an amazing life coach, you can find him on YouTube at Association Direct, ASSC Direct. He's a twice survivor and an ex-police officer. He's done a lot of research. He's coached a lot of psychologists, clinicians, uh, social workers, MFTs, and, and survivors, including myself. Um, and he says that narcissists have mastered the art of misdirection. They still have to create the illusion that they are grounded into you while they are priming another source. They are addicts, addicted to newness, addicted to supply, addicted to attention. So they're always looking for something else. This period of intermittent reinforcement is what intensifies the trauma bond. And after the devaluation, which could last months, years, weeks, days, you can be discarded just like that. And the discard is when that person, out of nowhere, this person's told you they're the love of your life, they're gonna create a life with you, they don't want anything but a relationship with you out of nowhere. They are gone and you find out that they have already moved on and started the cycle with someone new. If this new relationship does not work and they realize they've made a mistake, they may come back, which is um, in the NPD abuse culture is called the Hoover. They'll try to Hoover that person back. Uh, this is guaranteed that they will in some way, shape or form try to make contact again with their ex-victim. Again, they keep as many people in their lives that can feed that source, that feed that ego. So we wanna help our survivors uh, shut that down right away because if you allow that person back into your life, that cycle will start up again. It will be shorter in duration and stronger in intensity. Really important. If your client goes back to that person, the cycle will be shorter in duration and stronger in intensity and they will be abused again and now feeling worse. The narcissistic abuse tactics often used are gaslighting the victim, questions their sense of reality, withholding intimacy, silent treatment, infidelity, triangulation, narcissistic rage, causing the victim to apologize when they don't need to really apologize. So I've been talking a lot about trauma bonding. What is trauma bonding? One of the things I think uh, is really important to make clear is trauma bondings are not mutually exclusive with codependency, okay? And, and we're gonna get into the empathy and codependency stuff in a little bit. Now, there are the, uh, Theorists out there who will completely disagree with me, which I'm okay with that, that believe if you are someone who's caught up in uh, emotional abuse, that you are likely uh, a codependent. Um, I don't, that's theoretically, that is not where I sit, and I'll explain that in a little bit. Um, but trauma bondings, they're basically the Stockholm syndrome, okay? They, the hostage falls in love with their captor, with his or her captor. Um, Patrick Carnes, who wrote a book called The Betrayal Bond, which I highly recommend for clinicians and for 
uh, survivors, if you have clients who are survivors, are going through it, is he says, yet survivors also experience a bottleneck in their lives by commitment to deprivation. They start to become addicted. The victim becomes addicted to being deprived. Carnes describes trauma bonding as victims have a certain dysfunctional attachment that occurs in the presence of danger, shame, or exploitation. There is always some form of danger or risk involved in their relationships, who they're attracted to, why they stay. There's always some attraction to that danger or risk. Narcissists thrive through the creation of the trauma bond. Without a self-concept, there's an absence of warm empathy. Warm empathy, there's warm empathy and there's cold empathy. Warm empathy means that, well, let's start with cold empathy. Cold empathy means that someone understands what they're doing. They're well aware that if they push someone down, they've hurt them. Warm empathy or affective empathy implies that not only are they aware, but that they also care. So without a self-concept, there's an absence of warm empathy. Judith Orloff, another great uh, doctor in this field who studies empaths, um, in her book, uh, Empath Survival Guide, Judith Orloff says, the self-concept is what helps in society. It is what assists in pro-social development. Without a self-concept, there is no reason or ability to inhibit our antisocial impulses. So basically what she's saying is, if you're uh, unable to even tap into that, you're in that more primal state. There's no reason to really use any sort of impulse control. You just get what you want. So these people, the pathologically oriented, uh, narcissistically oriented people become exploitive, self-serving, and emotionally stunted. Narcissists rely on others to fill their void, a void that cannot be filled. When we're working with clients, we always tell them, you know, external uh, validation feels great, but it's not what keeps someone uh, happy, at least for a sustainable amount of time. So just to revisit cognitive versus affective empathy. So Narcissists use cognitive empathy to lure their victims into becoming dependent, which means that narcissists understand the difference between right and wrong. When someone goes to trial and they, they uh, go for the insanity plea, one of the arguments that is made is whether or not they understood the difference between right or wrong, at least in the state of California. We have a bifurcated trial, and one of, one of the... Um, you know, points that needs to be addressed is whether or not this person understood right from wrong. NPD cannot be used as a defense because someone with narcissistic personality disorder still lives in the world and understands right and wrong. So they use that. They use, they know what makes someone feel good. They know what makes someone feel bad. So narcissists do not truly experience the same feelings that their victim is experiencing in the early parts of the relationship. Okay, so they use this cold empathy, this awareness to offer all of the right things and mirror all of the right things to the individual. Um, and the narcissist is not feeling uh, the same type of feelings. They're feeling excitement, vigorated, invigorated. They're feeling um, like they, they finally found the person who's going to take them out of this torment. But they're an object to the narcissist. They're not seen as a separate human being with their own thoughts, feelings, emotions. So without affective empathy, you know, this is a recipe for disaster. Empathy implies relatability, vulnerability, true connection. This empathy threatens their power play. Narcissists must always be one step ahead. Therefore, they cannot authentically bond with a partner or a loved one. Daniel Shaw, another really great 
individual to study or read. He wrote a book called Traumatic Narcissism, Relational uh, Systems of Subjugation. He says, quote, the traumatizing narcissist, compelling need to suppress subjectivity in the other so that the narcissist's subjectivity is always the exclusively important and only valid focus. The traumatized narcissist recruits others in a relationship that seductively offers the promise of the bestowal of special gifts. The narcissist's goal is to corrupt and debilitate the subjectivity of the other, a form of dehumanization that is the very essence of traumatic abuse. Really, really recommend this book for clinicians who have either survivors or work with people who are pathologically narcissistic. Talks a lot about the intergenerational trauma. So how do we identify a victim if they come into our office? Well, those who have been in the cycle for a long period of time or have been in it for a short period of time but it's been very intense, we're going to see something very similar to, or exactly, uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Complex post-traumatic stress disorder is a condition that results from chronic or long-term exposure to emotional trauma over which a victim has little or no control and from which there is little or no hope of escape. And that is a quote from Out of the Fog. In this case, there is long-term exposure to inconsistent push-pull, splitting, or alternating raging and hoovering behaviors. There's exposure to gaslighting or crazy-making and false accusations for long periods of time. This person is exposed over and over and over to this crazy-making and blaming. They will, you will start to see what's called post-traumatic rumination. I've seen this in clients. They look like they haven't slept for 30 years. So the individual repeatedly thinks about these upsetting events, blames him or herself, imagines how the event could have been avoided or changed. Uh, some of the symptoms we might see, fear, jumpiness, tension, emotional avoidance, uh, potential derealization, which happens in trauma, break from reality. There are a lot of researchers who are now looking into uh, narcissistic abuse syndrome and how this is defined. And you can actually look up narcissisticvictimsyndrome.com. It's defined as someone being in a fog, pacing, confusion, loss of self, panic attacks, angry outbursts, insomnia, weight gain or weight loss, obsessive thoughts, rapid heart rate, muscle aches, throwing up, getting sick, desiring death, possibly suicidal, no interest in previous interests or even loved ones, so you're, a lot of depression. They're blaming themselves, second-guessing themselves, may, see des- uh, may seem desperate, trying to reach for help. Uh, there's a lot of fear that the narcissist is going to annihilate them, this sense that this individual has so much power. It's been, com- it's been compared, this type of abuse has been car- compared to a type of soul rape. The last part I want to talk about today is the empathy spectrum, the anatomy of an empath. You can find a lot of this research on vital mind psychology. So Dr. Abdul Saad, he's a PhD, and he's done a lot of research on pathological forms of empathy and how they develop and what it means and how um, people can actually move from more healthy functioning um, forms of empathy to more unhealthy forms of empathy. So... Dr. Saad believes that we have the healthy, functioning, authentic altruist, as well as the average functioning, which he refers to as the proud helper, and the unhealthy pathological, which he refers to as the codependent. Or actually, actually I should say the codependent, he refers to as the unhealthy pathological. So the authentic altruist is the first level. So many Many people do not ever really reach this level. 
this is a this empath has a very very high level of self-awareness he or she is very aware of internal motivations and limitations he or she still has the freedom to give or not give and he or she can still recognize when it is healthy not to give so this person is a realist and very wise and their altruism is very pure this individual is not attached to the outcome of the giving they are moved beyond the egocentric space of giving it is just it, it's almost like um, an automatic, it's like a reflex for this type of individual. He or she is very grounded and worked on developing self-awareness um, around their own narcissistic tendencies. Because like I said, going back to earlier in this discussion, we all have levels of narcissism that we have to recognize. And even codependency is a form of inverted narcissism, believing that we are that special, that good, that unique, that we could fix someone so damaged. So we all have our own forms of narcissism. So this individual has really done his or her work. This is someone who's highly, highly on a spiritual level. Maybe someone like the Dalai Lama would be an authentic altruist. Most people fall into the average functioning or what Dr. Saad refers to as the proud helper. This would be the second level. Therapists, oftentimes, we find ourselves in the proud helper. We go into this profession because we like helping people, because it feels good to help people. Sometimes we even get too invested in helping people to the point that we get disappointed if they fall backwards or they, um, you know, they, they relapse on drugs or alcohol. But there's still a genuine capacity to help other people. They view themselves to be at the center of help. As clinicians, that's what we are. We're at the center of health. Very influential over other person's well-being, another person's well-being. It may not be major strides, you know. It may not be really big uh, actions or behaviors. It could be helping someone with homework, taking the groceries up for someone. But there's still some sense of egocentricity involved with this functioning, average functioning. It can be a little self-deceptive at times. And it can, uh, this level can make it difficult for the individual to pull back. So people who get a little too invested in helping, in, despite the fact that it, it, it is in their, um, you know, coming from their heart, their egocentricity and some of their narcissism may get in the way of it being completely pure. This individual can become resentful when attempts to help go underappreciated, but he or she still has enough resources to, to bury this. Um, it may manifest in passive aggression, but it, will, it also does pass. This person can get through this, can get over it without it causing major distress. The third level, Dr. Saad refers to uh, codependency as the unhealthy pathological. He describes this as a pathological need to heal, save, and rescue another person. There is an obsessive quality, and it is focused only on one person. So a codependent is not someone who likes to help everybody and is invested all the time in healing the sick or helping the old person or... That might be more of the average functioning. This is someone who has put all of their energy into their abuser. Someone who has a, and this is where I really appreciate his research, is he says that someone is, who is of average functioning can be pushed over into this level the longer they are in a narcissistically abusive relationship. So what he is implying there is that someone who starts off in an emotionally abusive relationship may not necessarily be codependent. They might be average functioning, but the longer they're exposed to the abuse, they can be pulled into more pathological forms of empathy. Once this person has been pulled into codependency, 
then they routinely enter into abusive and addictive relationships. And you'll see this more in Patrick Karn's book, uh, The Betrayal Bond. He talks about this quite a bit. Kids who learned er learn early on who have narcissistic parents. There's compulsive desires to seek out unhealthy people to fix. So think um, part of Freud's repetition compulsion, seeking out that early injury, trying to remaster it in adult relationships. It can be highly irrational. Um, this person can be highly irrational and suicidal at the threat of abandonment, that they, they will kill themselves if this person, if this abuser leaves them. And they can even start to develop psychosomatic illnesses. They start to get very sick. Um, someone who's been in a narcissistically abusive relationship for a long period of time will start to uh, show a lot of mental illness as well as autoimmune disorders, physical illnesses. People get very sick when their um, nervous system is hyperactivated, which sort of moves me into the next section, which is a continuance of Dr. Saad's research on the hyperactivated attachment system. So what we need to do as clinicians is we first need to identify the stage of stress that the individual is in. Um, are they in the first stage, which is sort of the alarm stage, the fight or flight? The second stage, resistance stage, the person gets locked to an inflammatory stage, okay? Their body starts to uh, gain a lot of inflammation. There's long-term effects of this. We, we've, we know that long-term effects of inflammation can lead to depression, depletions in serotonin, muscle mass. And then the third stage, which is the stage that I've seen a lot of my uh, clients in, is the exhaustion stage or the burnout stage. And they look like they haven't slept or eaten in a very long time. So the empath's burnout is due to this constant hyperactivity in the attachment system. So the empath begins to shut down and isolate. The empath is only surrounding themselves with people who support their delusional world. They're only going to befriend or keep the people around who are supporting this abusive cycle. The empath is increasing in cynicism at this point, and he or she is no longer a fully functioning human being. Dr. Saad also states that the relationship becomes a shared psychosis where the victim regresses to primitive defense mechanisms. His or her own narcissism starts to appear. We see a lot of cognitive dissonance and depersonalization starting to happen when this burnout starts. So as clinicians, we have to help them calm the nervous system, help our client calm the nervous system. We want to identify where this empathy is coming from. Are we trying to reduce the fear of being unloved? Are we trying to reduce the fear of being insignificant or feeling insignificant? Are we reducing the fear of being without protection or being vulnerable? Or is this person a combination? The empath's response to attachment, these components all contribute to a hyper-focus on the narcissist. So this opens up easy channels for the narcissist to abuse by gaslighting and stilling doubt. This person is now traumatically bonded, completely burnt out. The empath starts to lose his or her grounding, sense of authority, starts to lose their, their close relationships. The hyperactivated attachment system and need to please creates burnout after a period of time. And this person starts to become resentful and experience other negative feelings. The empath now starts to channel their resentments and negative feelings toward their support system because they know they can't channel it towards the abuser. So there's a lot of displaced aggression. And as this happens, as they lose their support system, they start to experience an intense closeness and chemistry with the narcissist at the beginning of the relationship. Okay, so, so let me go back, I'm sorry. This happens at the beginning of the relationship, this intense closeness that forms the trauma bond. So, so when these red flags are popping up at the beginning of the relationship, the empath overrides the more rational and cognitive faculties of their brain and just sort of lets those go and falls into this trauma bond, this too good to be true thing that's happening. The empath can't access their rational brain due to this hyperactivity 
in the attachment system. So there's a fear of upsetting, fear of how they're coming across, increased strong internal critic, need to please. Everything is about being perfect for their narcissist. Someone who is in a constant state of hyperactivated attachment seeks out these types of people, seeks out abusers. So this system becomes activated. So after a while, it becomes this pattern. And this is where the codependency piece comes in. This is where he believes that the average functioning actually goes into the more unhealthy functioning codependency. So we need to help them calm that nervous system. Client is stuck in exhaustion. So talk therapy at this point is not going to work if someone is under this hyperactivated uh, nervous system. So we need to help them identify the energy vampires in their life. We need to talk to them about self-care, sleep, hydration, diet. We want to be careful with exercise because an over-exercising um, can also increase the adrenaline and actually contribute to the hyperactivity of the attachment system. We want to teach grounding techniques, mindfulness. The hyperactivated attachment system needs to be cared for first. Once that person starts to feel a little bit more grounded, then we can work in the talk therapy. We might want to even send them to their medical doctor. Um, there's research that shows something like magnesium citrate helps calm the nervous system. Narcissists do not allow closure. Closure means that person gets peace and comfort. An abuser doesn't grant this. We, as clinicians, need to hear their story. Even though content is not always important, we talk a lot about context and getting beneath the content. In these situations, telling their story is very healing, very important. It's likely that the victim has not been given closure. They're going to rely on therapy for closure. If you rush this, you're disallowing an essential piece of the healing process. Narcissists will often run away at the end. Sometimes days after someone's planning a wedding or finds out they're pregnant, planned a trip, or the victim's lost a loved one. So they're left in the shock. The victim is left in disbelief and feels emotionally raped and robbed. So the perpetrator has already moved on and is already in love again, restarting the cycle. We have to help this individual move on. Okay, but we can't rush it. The victim is reminded of his or her own worthlessness when they find out that this new person, that this person has someone new. As clinicians, we must validate, but also identify how the abuser used deception so they don't blame themselves because the clients will be left traumatized, stuck in this emotional state the longest. The client should understand how a normal breakup should not cause this amount of trauma. Healthy relationships offer closure. Narcissistically abusive relationships do not. Through time, the client can identify the abuser as disordered, thereby reestablishing their power and coming out of the fog. The last piece that I want to touch on before we end today is straight out of Judith Orloff's book, The Empath Survival Guide. We live in a society where narcissism is becoming very popular and very positively reinforced. Dr. Orloff states that empaths are now pathologized and the decrease in empathy is the downfall of society. We need to encourage empaths to stay empaths, to feel, to be compassionate but also to learn how to conserve their energy. She says, science has made it a sensory disorder. It is not a disorder, it is a gift, but you have to set up boundaries as grounding to protect yourself, end quote. We have to help the client nurture the giving and empathic parts of the self without burnout. You will see people experiencing panic, panic attacks, depression, they will develop autoimmune disorders. Our work is helping them develop the healthy parts of empathy, how to use them in relationships that are healthy, how to avoid and stay no contact, if at all possible, with their abuser, to recognize that this individual 
is disordered, that they did not create any of this. This is why couples counseling can be very dangerous because in couples counseling, we look at both people being accountable and we might reinforce the abuse if we don't recognize this cycle. Thank you so much for listening here today. I hope that most of you learn something new and can apply it to your practice. Once again, my name is Dr. Katherine Barrett. I'm a clinical psychologist working out of Woodland Hills, California. If you would like to know more about our practice or know more about me, you can visit our website at teentherapycenter.com, teen as in teenager, teentherapycenter.com. And if you go under staff, you'll find me and my contact information. I wish you all a great day and take care. Bye-bye. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.